Have you ever wondered who pastors the pastors? Yeah. I have a pastor, and he's here this morning. My friend Rick Mylander. Rick is our associate director in the Midwest Conference. I just want to make sure that you know he's here and that, uh, that you greet him. He is just a wonderful brother and a, and a dear friend. And he is here to uh, participate with us in our groundbreaking ceremony that's going to be happening uh, right after the service this morning. You may have noticed that there's a table of mugs out there in the foyer. Some of you may have grabbed one already. There are some things to uh, remember, kind of a little bookmark. I think there's a couple in each mug so that uh, you can have them in different places in the house, be reminded uh, of some things that are important to pray for in these days to come as we uh, begin construction. And of course, all of that is possible because Judgment Day did not happen yesterday. As forecast, of course, by an 89-year-old California evangelical broadcaster, followers were, they were in a dilemma. What to make of his his failed pronouncement? Harold Camping, you probably have read Uh, former civil engineer who heads the family radio network of Christian stations, he was unwavering in his message that believers would be swept to heaven on May 21st. Maybe they were. Uh And here we are. I'm sorry. Oh, no. They posted, uh, gosh, they posted over 2,000 billboards around the United States, a warning of judgment day. In New York, uh, in this story that I read yesterday, retired transportation agency worker Robert Fitzpatrick, he was inspired by the message and he spent over $140,000 of his own money on subway posters and outdoor advertisements warning of the May 21st Judgment Day. And as he stood in Times Square, surrounded by onlookers, He carried a Bible, he handed out leaflets as he waited for Judgment Day to begin, and he expected that it would begin sometime around 6 p.m. Eastern time. Well, when the hour came and went, he is quoted as saying, I I just do not understand why. And then his speech kind of broke off as he looked at his watch. Well, maybe... It's because Jesus said something about no one knowing the time or the day or the hour. There's a novel thought that Jesus might actually know what he was talking about. (sighs) Makes me sad for that gentleman. Makes me sad for a lot of folks who, uh, who banked a lot on yesterday and the truth of that Outrageous prediction. On the other hand, in his book, Outlive Your Life, Max Licato writes the following. He says, you know, long before the church had pulpits and baptistries, the church had kitchens and dinner tables, and even a casual reading of the New Testament unveils the house as the primary tool of the church. The primary gathering place of the church was the home. Consider, he says, God's genius plan. First generation of Christians was a tinderbox of contrasting cultures, classes, and backgrounds. At least 15 different nationalities heard Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Jews stood next to Gentiles. Men worshipped with women. Slaves and masters alike sought after Christ. Can people of such varied backgrounds 
really get along? And we wonder sometimes the same thing today, don't we? Can Hispanics really live in peace with Anglos? Can Democrats find common ground with Republicans? Can a Christian family carry on a civil friendship with the Muslim family down the street? Can divergent people really get along? The early church often did. And they did it without the aid of so many of the the tools and things that we have today. They did it with the message of the cross, and they did it with a simple tool often called the home. You see, something holy, Locato says, happens around a dinner table that will never happen in a sanctuary. In a church auditorium, you see the backs of heads. Around the table, you see the expressions on faces. In the auditorium, one person speaks. Around the table, everyone has a voice. Church services are on the clock, and around the table, there's time to talk. Hospitality opens the door to uncommon community, he says. It's no accident that hospitality and hospital come from the same Latin word, for they both lead to the same result, healing. That story just grabbed me this week as I was thinking about Ephesians and where we've been and Paul's exhortations that we have been looking at, those three primary relationships of the households in Ephesus. Remember, he's speaking to what we've learned are the foundational relationships that that the Roman Empire, its culture, considered critical to the survival of its culture. Husband and wife relationship, parent and children, especially the father and children, and the slave and the master. And he's, he's putting a kingdom of God twist on these relationships that were so fundamental to society. And, and as we've learned, the male was the ruler of those relationships. He was the, the despot of his, of his household. Paul knew, you see, that, that the followers of Jesus, if they are really passionately following after Jesus, they're not going to live their lives in isolation. They're going to be with people. They're living in neighborhoods. They're living in communities. They interact with others who are not following after Jesus. They, they, they live, some of them, with those who are not following after Jesus. They live next door to them. They work with them. They share life and perhaps even special events. And, and as a result, Paul knows that followers of Jesus are going to be, if they are living as Jesus has called them to live, visual aids to how people live in relationship. It's the biggest problem in our world. People don't know how to live in relationship. And so Paul is applying these these Christ-like exhortations to what were the three significant relationships of the Roman culture. Because he knows that as folks live according to these guidelines, their actions are going to be noticed by others. And it's important to remember, too. Does this mean I have to stand here? (laughs) Toddy, that's really hard. Okay. Is that better? Okay. So Paul knew. That, that these folks are living in relationship with others who are not followers of Jesus, and he's interested, passionately so, in others knowing Jesus. Passion of his life. He's convinced, if you read Paul, that every circumstance, every opportunity, every relationship is there to make 
Jesus known. And he wrote to the Philippians, remember, I've learned, he said, to be content in any and every situation, whether I'm well fed, whether I'm hungry, whether I'm living in plenty or in want. He said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He was, he was interested in God's people living a life that looks and sounds like Jesus no matter where they find themselves, no matter who they find themselves in relationship with. Now, it's important to really remember that. That's his passion. It's important to remember that, especially as we come to this last relationship. We've talked about husbands and wives. We've talked about parents and children, particularly the, the father and his children. And last Sunday, we heard him talk about this third relationship in this way. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. Do it with respect and with fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Let me read that again, just in case you missed it. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Okay. Turn to somebody nearby and tell them why it is that that statement troubles you. Because it does. Paul, is he endorsing slavery? What's going on here? Come on, turn to your neighbor and say, why does Paul say that? Why does he say something differently? Okay. Any responses? Remember, you can always blame it on your neighbor. Say, this is what my neighbor said. What do you think? What, I mean, what's, what's your response to this statement? Find it troubling? Is it okay? Doug. <laughs> oh, you mean Brinley? Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. But it was good, whatever she said. <laughs> okay. 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 Good. What else? What else did you hear or think? Silence. Alfredo. Uh, Jill? As my neighbor said, the woman is your wife. Oh. <laughs> uh, I think she put it quite well. God doesn't want us to change our circumstances. He wants to live, us to live appropriately in our circumstances through Christ. Hmm. Where'd you come up with that idea? That's good. Yeah. Do you want to finish this? <laughs> Yeah, how, how do we as God's people live in our circumstances? And in fact, maybe before that is, is how are we viewing our circumstances? How are we thinking about our circumstances? Um, what do they present to us? You know, our, our, our thinking about this is quickly shaped by 
by the 19th century slavery that was a part of our country's experience. It's foreign to us. We, we don't live with that today, but, but we know enough to know about that period in our country's history that it was, it was bleak. Uh, not a good thing. And, and, and we're appalled by that. We can't understand how, how what seems to be th- this in, is an endorsement versus maybe an exhortation to, to revolt. Some historians feel that the Roman culture in which the Ephesians were living, slavery was so woven into the fabric of society that, that many folks didn't even think about the possibility that it might be wrong. That, that perhaps a, a third of the people in Rome were slaves. There are only a couple of, of small groups that we can find on record that were, that were opposed to slavery on the basis of, of its principle. And people became slaves in many different ways. They, they were born into slavery. They became slaves because their parents sold them into slavery or they were abandoned as children taken captive in war, the inability to pay a debt, and some even did it voluntarily to to better their condition in life. Interesting reading when you you read all of the different uh, perspectives on, on slavery in Rome. Yeah, there was abuse. There was terrible abuse. But there were other situations in which slaves were like members of the family, and slaves could earn their freedom. Sometimes they were, they were even paid wages. Here's the point. For the early church to, to advocate against slavery just wouldn't have made sense. It was what it was. They were a tiny majority, minority of people in, in, this, in this empire that was built upon slavery. One scholar said for the church to launch a revolt... That's what he called it. To launch a revolt against slavery would have meant the death of Christianity. So whether we think that it's, it's right or wrong, the culture, and, and particularly in the early church, the leading of the Spirit amongst the leaders of that day resulted in, in what we have in the Scripture. One commentator puts it this way, and I like this. He says, he says slavery and other social issues were not their focus. The gospel and its description of life was the focus. The early Christians did not necessarily work out the sociological implications of the gospel, except where it related to people being receptive to the message and relationships among people within the church. And that's what we have here. Paul is speaking about a relationship that the culture is built upon. If one-third of the Roman Empire was slaves, then it's conceivable that one-third of the congregations in Ephesus were slaves. Paul assumes it, and he challenges those, and this is the important thing, he challenges those in those relationships to live for Christ and to honor Him in their actions. To the slave, as we've heard, he tells He tells the slave to to obey the master and to not do it only when they're watching, but to do it even when the master's not around. And he says, serve them as if you are serving the Lord because the Lord will reward you for your actions. And to the master, he says, "Don't, don't be harsh. 
treat the slave in the same way, not threatening, not with harshness, knowing, he says, that, that the master in heaven, Jesus Christ, is watching. So, with that in mind, let's, let's just make what seems to be a, a sudden jump to the next text, and then we'll, I think, tie them back together in a way that, that might be a challenge and make some sense for us. As we stand and read, pay particularly close attention to the first three verses and how those might speak to these primary relationships. Okay, let's stand together. Which verses are you going to pay particularly close attention to? First three. Okay, good. Just want to make sure you knew that. All right, let's read together. Here we go. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil. Let's read that one again. Let's read that again. Listen closely. Here we go. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world than against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. My brothers and my sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Okay. Did you hear what Paul said? Battle language here. Suddenly, Paul is, is saying that, that the Ephesians, or at least he's implying very, very clearly, the Ephesian believers... And the believers at Applewood Community Church are in a battle. Did you listen closely? What does he say the battle is? I heard it. It's spiritual. The battle is spiritual in nature. So someone remind me, what's, what's the overall theme to the book of Ephesians that we have talked about a fair number of times. I really hope somebody knows this. Greg, say it louder. The way people should live together in response to God's amazing grace. We've said it several times this way. God's people living as if they get it. Living as if grace is really a big deal. Living as if grace really is amazing. Living as if grace really is undeserved. 
this familiar at all to you? Just nod your head. I'll feel so much better. Okay, thanks. We can't separate the battle that Paul speaks of from the theme of the letter. To live in response to God's amazing grace is a daily battle that the enemy that he's talking about in his scheming is striving to make us lose, is striving to to undo the results of grace in our lives. And let me ask you, where? Where is our understanding, where is our grasp of grace going to be most readily identifiable? Relationships. It's the way we treat one another. It's the way we treat others in our lives. Relationships are the great challenge of the world. People don't get along. Grace is about leveling the ground so that people can get along. It's it's just, it's the heartbeat of living out the gospel on a daily basis. We call ourselves followers of Jesus, do we not? What's the most distinctive thing about Jesus' life? The way he dealt with people caused quite a stir. He hung out with all the wrong folks. He said all the wrong things. He blessed the wrong people. And he got angry at the right people. What's up with that? That's Jesus. And so as those who call ourselves followers of Jesus see that in his life, and we remember that he did nothing, by his own words, he did nothing, he said nothing, apart from the will of his father, it was all about obedience. Jesus lived the life that he lived in obedience to the call of his father upon his life, and that showed itself in really strange, by the culture standards, behavior towards people. We just read those words. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not. It's not against flesh and blood. Do you know any flesh and blood? Yeah, they're sitting next to you. They're around you every day. They're in your school, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your rec center. Flesh and blood surrounds us. There's nobody who isn't, even though sometimes we may think so. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. So, here's the point. Because some of you are wondering, what on earth is he talking about? Our struggle to live out the grace of God on a daily basis. That's the theme of Ephesians. The struggle to live out that grace of God and to live as if we get it. That struggle is never against people. We may struggle with people. But the struggle is never against them. People are never the enemy, is what Paul is saying. They're never the enemy. People are often used by the enemy. But they are not the enemy. It's a truth that I think needs to penetrate deeply into our hearts. We need to hear this. This needs to resonate with us. Jesus died for every human being. Amen. Jesus died 
for every human being. That, that doesn't mean that every human being has ever been or will be transformed by His grace. But that doesn't change the truth. It remains that every single person is of infinite worth and Jesus died for them. And that includes even the terrorists and the one that was recently killed. For sure, he was labeled as an enemy of our country. But my friends, he was never an enemy of the people of God. Jesus even died for someone like Osama bin Laden. I hope you don't go away mad at me for saying this, but it's, it's the truth. We, we don't judge who Jesus died for and who he didn't die for. The, the, the grace of God is mysteriously, mysteriously and sometimes troublingly so and outrageously so extended to all people. As followers of Jesus, living in a land of great freedom and personal rights, it's hard for us to relate to the dehumanizing categories that, that Paul was speaking into, the categories that, that the women and the children and the slaves fell into, oftentimes less than human categories, so that if you're like me, I read these things and I sometimes think, man, that's just, it's, it's almost artificial. Because in that day, what was a wife to do if her husband didn't love her as Christ loved the church? He didn't, she didn't have any choices. Because she was only property. What was a child to do if his or her father was harsh and abusive? They had nowhere to go. And slaves? What were their choices if, if a master was harsh and unreasonable? Paul's challenge to them was to bring the grace of God into the relationship by doing their very best in the power of the Holy Spirit to love them and serve them and submit to them as they would to the Lord Jesus. To understand that is to understand that a harsh husband or a harsh father or a master is not an enemy. But in fact, they are a soul for whom Christ died. As we look around at the relationships in our lives, we have the opportunity to walk away. We live in freedom. Is that bothering you? It's possible that God is, is using us in that situation to bring his grace and to bring renewal. To see people know Jesus must always be our highest concern. That was Paul's. That's what drives these exhortations. That too needs to drive us in our relationships. To look at every person as a soul of infinite worth for whom Christ died. And an opportunity to bring His grace into their lives as a result of our actions, our responses, our lack of responses. So, we've got to go. Praise team, come up. I'll just jump down here to the end. Come up and prepare to lead us as we, uh, as we respond this morning. Let me, let me leave you with some questions. Just some possibilities for us to consider in 
in this, this land of freedom and choices, uh, how, do we, how do we understand the heartbeat of what Paul is driving at here? Is it possible, is it possible that sometimes we may be too quick to flee from a difficult situation just because we can? Is it possible that, that, that we do? Is it possible because we are treated unfairly or we're disrespected or we're verbally maligned? Do we start looking for the options because we can, because we have them? Is it possible that, that we are too quick to think and speak badly of a person that makes our life difficult? A spouse? A boss? A parent? A child? A teacher? A neighbor? <clears throat> Forgetting that, that they're not the enemy. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. They're not the enemy. But in fact, that person that makes my life difficult, a soul of infinite worth for whom Christ died. Is it possible that we forget in the heat of painful relationships that God is still on his throne and that he is pleased when we cry out in desperate need of his strength? God, I can't do this! <laughs> it's almost like you hear, now we're talking. Of course you can't. Is it possible that we forget that, that God has always allowed his people to face hardships of every kind. And that he uses those, he redeems those oftentimes to grow his people, to bring glory to himself, to bring souls to Jesus. Is it possible that we forget the words of Jesus, that because we are indwelled with his spirit, and because we bear his name, that we will be persecuted, but we're blessed. We're blessed when people insult us and persecute us and falsely say all kinds of nasty stuff about us. We're blessed. Is it possible that the grace of God lived out in challenging relationships and circumstances? Is it possible that that does more to make people aware of the reality of God and the importance of having a relationship with Him than billboards and placards all over the country? 